two, three. Welcome to. <laughs> no, we gotta do it at the same time, so we're just gonna stay recording. Welcome, Welcome to, to a Florida, Florida thing. thing. I am your host, Tyler, with my grandmother, Grammel. On today's episode, we are going to talk about the book The Changing South of Jean Patterson Journalism and Civil Rights, 1960 to 1968, and it's edited by Roy Peter Clark and Raymond Arsenal. Jean Patterson was a white, Southern progressive journalist who wrote a column every day for eight years in the 60s. His columns covered the civil rights era and included desegregation, violent mobs on university campuses, and the assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy. In the second segment, we are going to get to talk to Roy Peter Clark, who co-edited the collection and who also teaches at the Pointer Institute, one of the most prestigious schools for journalists in the world. We talked to Roy about Gene's legacy, John Lewis writing about race in America, and the job of journalism in 2020. Oh, and he also might sing us a song. In this first segment, we are going to talk about the book, The Changing South of Gene Patterson. Journalism and Civil Rights, 1960 to 1968, edited by Roy Peter Clark and Raymond Arsenault. It's also currently raining, so if you hear our dog kind of breathing heavy, that's because she doesn't love rainstorms. Miss Roxy, she's fine. She's just got a little anxiety. So Jean Patterson was the former editor of the Atlanta Constitution from 1960 through 1968, and he wrote a daily column. So every day he would write a column in response to what was going on, an editorial. And so this book takes about 120, a little bit more than 120 or so of his pieces, and they selected those pieces out of 3,200 columns that he published in those eight years. And so the thing about Gene Patterson is he was a progressive white Southerner from a very small rural town in Georgia. This book could change your life, not only changing the South. It was very, very poignant and made you really think, and I cried. I cried in many, many places. It was really unique the way they presented it, too. Uh, they presented about 40 pages of facts about what was in the book. And then they started presenting some of his more stark or soul-searching or touching articles. The way he decided to write these was to include himself in them. And he would say things like, we as Southerners are better than this. We as Southerners can change. We as Southerners would not want to hurt anybody. And so he would include himself. And maybe he was really talking to himself also. But he didn't just fuss at the masses. He included himself in that. And I think that's the one reason that it could get through to people. That he was fussing at himself just as much as he was with some people's choices and decisions and actions. 
And that was a wonderful way to him, for him to get through to many people. And it made it very touching, too. He just had a kind of an uh, educated, good old boy way to talk that people could understand and relate to. The thing about Gene Patterson is he was a Southern journalist who was speaking to his folks, like his the people that he grew up with who were more conservative. And conservative, they were segregationists, a lot of them. Most. So his thing was that he identified with the area and he knew those people and he understood what they had been taught and what they had experienced and lived through because he had probably been in similar situations and he didn't want to alienate those folks or separate himself he thought they would be more comfortable hearing the way he was talking to them because his idea was that if he didn't talk to them like that then they wouldn't listen and there were already a, a lot of them very firmly held in their beliefs So he was trying to get them to listen even a little bit to maybe potentially change their thought process. He grew up on a farm. His mom was a school teacher. And then he went off to the war. And he learned a lot about life in the war. And he was a very brave soldier. Some of the deaths of his comrades, well, all of them really affected him. And, uh, then the reason that we were fighting World War II, um, really, he felt that and he was changed for good when he came out of the service. Because they were fighting literal Nazis. Yes. So then when they got home, I think it, it he may have already been on his more liberal path, but I think that really showed him about how serious things can get and how they how serious they already were in America and so I think that really seems, was a big thing for him in his writing it don't seem to be the older I get it doesn't seem to be a very very large leap to come from thinking you know you're right to knowing you know you're right and you're gonna for want of better words push it down other people's throats And what I found really interesting about this book, like you were saying, so the first two chapters are essentially context socially and then historically for Gene Patterson's place in history, because there were other Southern writers like him, but he and the Atlanta Constitution stood out as being really important for the South and specifically Atlanta. So we have this context, and then it gets into his daily columns. So there's a lot of historical elements that are going on, but we're getting them through kind of filtered through his opinions and through his lens. So we see things happening and then we're getting his own ideas and and comments on it. So, and these columns, they're about 750 words each. So they're kind of pretty short dispatches, one after the other after the other. And the way they curated them, I thought was really nice because it kept up the pace and it hit on certain points and then it would come back to certain points, like when he was talking about Martin Luther King and the boycotts and stuff like that. He made history come alive 
in a down-to-earth way, a daily, day-by-day way. You just didn't want to stop. You wanted to read the next article, the next column. Once I got rolling in that, it was really hard to stop and take a break and go eat or take the dog out or anything like that. It was just, it was, it was like you were back there. And nowadays we're kind of there again. Right. This book is so relevant. And I think that was sad. It was sad and it was scary. And it was like, this can't be, this can't be that we're here again. I mean, the 60s was a really tumultuous time when people were really fighting. This book talks about Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, President Kennedy, you know, assassinations of really Attorney General. important people to the movement. It also talks about attempted assassination on James Meredith, who was the first African-American to go to the University of Mississippi and the riots that were happening on that campus, which I bring that up because I, I mean, it's important to the book, but that's also where I currently teach. So it was something I was aware of, but something that I was also focusing on when it was coming up in the text. It was just really one thing after the other, after the other, and it was like, A lot of tension. I learned a lot more about President Lyndon Johnson because it also was about the Vietnam War and the um, protest about the war. So it was a history book come to life. These were very important times of history. I mean, war too, the Vietnam War, civil rights, all those assassinations in such a small amount of time. And what was so impressive to me too is so he has to write these columns every day and that's hard work to do and he's responding to like all of these tragedies that were happening and always bringing it back to white southerners we are the reason why these things are happening to people of color. Like even the well-intentioned folks we still have to change things for folks. We have to do this. He was all. He would always bring it back to that. And he would bring out the um, bad and the good, because there was a lot of good things that happened in small towns back there. There was a burning down of churches, right, which was horrible. But then there were poor people given even a quarter towards the building fund. Right, because he wrote a column about it and then they were taking money for it and some people would send in money, whatever they could. A a politician, say a town politician, would send in $200, but most send in a dollar to five dollars is what I got the average of. And uh, so that was reassuring that we poor people can take our quarter and our dollar and our five dollars and help rebuild a very simple church. And not only that, the architect, he gave of his time free to build, to design those churches. Yeah, and I think Gene, in his writing, he's very critical of the way Southerners are acting, but certain some Southerners. But at his very core, 
he believes in the South. He's a, ch a champion of the Southern spirit and the Southern person. He's saying, we need to act better than this because we are better than this. And so he really towed the line of being critical, but also, you know, supporting his fellow Southerners, which was, this, a lot of Southerners were not acting right in the 60s. I support Southerners and Floridians, and I will, you know, back that. But when someone's not acting right, you just got to say, you're not acting right. You cannot beat around the bush. As my mother would say, you're acting ugly. And there was a lot of ugliness. Yes. And by the way, Floridians, his town was real near the Florida line. And he kept coming back to that every now and then. So I don't know why he did that, but I like that he did that, that he would, uh, you know, revert back to being real close to um, Florida. Um, right. And no, he, this book covers the six from 1960 to 68. He did end up coming down to the St. Petersburg Times and was an editor there for a while. And he really helped make the St. Petersburg Times, now the Tampa Bay Times, one of the best papers, one of the most well-known papers in the South. And he had a big hand in that. So we're very lucky yes, that yes. he did that. I graduated in the uh, 60s, and by uh, 1961, I had a uh, child. And 22 months later, another child. So... A lot of this, I, I mean, I knew of it all, but when you're newly married and raising babies, you know, you don't immerse yourself in them like I do now in politics. So I found, I was very grateful for the book that I could read about something I knew about, but understand it much, much better by his writing and the great editing and everything that was uh, done in the book. So uh, even you could say to yourself, well, I knew all about that. Well, I could say that too, but I really didn't know all about that. And I learned so much from um, the book and it made history so come to life. I would just recommend it. I never thought it would be so something I'll hold close to my heart from now on is this book. And I think something too that was kind of cool is they kind of varied the energy. Like there was a lot of intense stuff, but then they would ha they chose a profile of a little boy running a lemonade stand. Do you remember that one? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and about being a ten year old entrepreneur. And then he they kind of have this running callback to this guy, I guess, who owns a bait shop on a lake that Gene and his wife would fish at. So there were these little moments of daily life that were also interspersed throughout, kind of to remind people that there was a lot of tensions going on as there are now this summer, but daily life also goes on um, and, and that we can get to a place where our daily lives can continue and be, be peaceful with each other. The 60s was a wild time. So much happened in American history. I know. Read the book. You'll never forget it. It'll All make right. you a better person. And that's been our thoughts on The Changing South of Jean Patterson.
edited by Roy Peter Clark and Raymond Arsenal. I'm interested to talk with Roy later about some of their choices for columns because they had so many to choose from. So I'm interested to see how that process went. I'd like to read the ones they eliminated. <laughs> they had to eliminate a lot because there were so many. Yes. I'd like to read a handful of those. Hello, Tyler. How are you? Great. How are you? This is my grandmother, Margie. Hello. Hi, Mar hey, Margie. Margie, thank you for Tyler. <laughs> Grateful. That's nice. You can have him. <laughs> I really enjoyed that book. It was amazing. I love to read. And that's just an awesome book. It yeah. made me cry. It made me laugh. It made me sob. It made me think. It just touched my heart in many, many ways. That had to be a job, and you're blessed to have that kind of abilities and stick to itness. Margie, you know, it was really interesting the way it, it happened. Uh, I was hired by Gene Patterson in 1977. I was living in Montgomery, Alabama at the time. I was teaching, uh, I'm from New York but I got my first teaching job in the South. And I got to meet some Southern progressive editorial writers. And one of them, Ray Jenkins, mentioned to me that uh, Gene Patterson, who had been an editor in Atlanta, was now the editor of the St. Petersburg Times. So he was also president of the American Society of Newspaper Editors. And so uh, I was an English teacher. And he hired me for what was supposed to be a year-long project <laughs> to come to the newspaper and improve the quality of the writing at the Times. And then I was going to go back to Montgomery. But a lot of things happened, and, and one year turned into 43 years. Don't um, you just love that? I do, I do like it. They came up, I was having lunch with them at a restaurant. I don't think it exists anymore. It was this dark, old... Spanish seafood restaurant on 4th Street called Pepin's. Oh, yeah. I've heard yeah. of it. Yeah. And, and we went, and it was his, one of his favorite restaurants. And I said, you know, Gene, I've read one or two of your famous columns from back uh, when you were in Atlanta. I'd like to read more of them. And he said, uh, he, he brushed me off. He said, oh, you don't want to read those. You don't want to read those old things. And I said, well, you know, if if I could get my hands on them some way. And he said, well, all right, come on back to the house. So we drove back to this house on uh, Brightwaters, Snell Isle, beautiful house on the, on the water. And he opened up a closet. And in the closet he had, I want to say, eight oversized albums. And we just looked into one of them. These albums were filled with his columns which had been carefully glued, I want to say pasted. His assistant had organized these chronologically so that I think there were nine albums covering the years 1960 through 1968, when he eventually left Atlanta to go to the Washington Post. I took these, I put them in my car, I went back to Pointer, and I alerted 
my then colleague, David Shedden, who was the chief librarian and archivist and historian of the Institute to come out to the car. And when I opened the trunk of the car and he could see these albums, it was like this scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark <laughs> when wow. somebody opens up the Ark of the Covenant and their face uh, melts. You know, I mean, uh, he's a very mild-mannered person, but he basically took possession of these. I had no access to them for, for months. And when he was finished, he had made, he had the originals, and then he made two copies and, and recreated in a protected way every single document. So I got to bring these home. I didn't know it at the time, but Gene, or like his mentor, Ralph McGill, had taken it upon himself as editor of the paper to write a signed column that appeared in the newspaper every day for eight years. Now, my assumption, if I wanted to do that, let's say that I wanted to, in a normal year, not this year, mm -hmm. but in a normal year, if I wanted to write 365 columns, what I would do is I would write two on Thursday, two on Friday, so he could have, so I could have the weekend free. Amen. Gene, Gene didn't think that way. He thought that if he wrote two columns on one day, the second one wouldn't have the energy or insight of the, of the first one. So every single day, and this includes on fishing boats, you know, wherever he happened to be, Gene was writing his 800, 900 words. I read, I had, it felt like a privilege. I read every single one of them, more than 3,000. That was the source material out of which I and Ray Arsenault, the Southern historian from the University of South Florida, chose the ones, created a little anthology of the ones that were most about civil rights, social justice, race relations, and the changing South as, uh, as he saw. Now that book was published in 2002, and to our surprise and delight, the University Press of Florida is a new paperback edition. Wow. Which I, which I think appropriately has Gene and his mentor, Ralph McGill, who we call Pappy. That's, you know, 18 years later, they decided to, to publish the, the paperback edition. Now, it hasn't got much attention because of circumstances beyond anybody's control right now. That said, what an amazingly appropriate moment for the book to be republished. Yes. In the aftermath of the death of George Floyd and the, the revitalization of the civil rights movement in its current manifestation. And then the death of, add to that, the death of John Lewis, who uh, had a close relationship with Gene. Yes, that and was amazing. I got to meet, Gene introduced him to me. Wow. At the Constitution, at the newspaper, when we were doing a book event up there when the book was launched. And then he was, uh, John Lewis was the keynote speaker for an event that I directed for Pointer in 2016, where we celebrated the 
centennial of the Pulitzer Prizes. Yeah, I just um, wrote a column about that experience for Pointer and, and also for the Catalyst. So Yeah, Tyler gave it to me and I read it. You know, that's quite a, a journey. My mom, who, who lived until she was um, almost 96, she was half Jewish and half Italian. And she had this habit, this, this pattern of maternal behavior. I think the, the Jewish or, or Yiddish word for it is kavelling, K-V-E-L-L-I-N-G. To, to kavel about your children is to praise them and to praise them publicly and almost to the point of exaggeration. So my grandmother, who was Jewish, uh, Sadie, cavelled a lot on me. And so when they both passed, I said, well, who's going to cavel me anymore? You know, I said, well, maybe you got to cavel yourself a little bit. You know, so my mother said, if it's true, it's not. Remember this, right? If it's true, it's not bragging. So the only thing I will take credit for is having lunch with Gene Patterson and telling him, you know, I'd really like to read those columns. That casual uh, remark was the, the launching pad for something I think was very special. And uh, I say that because of the way it reflected back on Gene. Gene was not in, uh, in Ralph McGill's shadow. But there are roads, I believe, in buildings that are named after McGill in Atlanta. I always thought that McGill was Babe Ruth and Gene was Lou Gehrig. So, you know, um, and so what happened is that after the book came out, Gene's work got a second life and well-deserved. Well-deserved. I started to say that, yes. So you had so much source material, and you talk a little bit about how you made the choices of which columns to include. But can you talk to us a little bit more about that, especially because you were working with a historian? So I'm wondering if there were conversations about what to leave in and what to kind of not focus on as much. So probably Ray might have a different, um, might remember it a little differently. (laughs) Basically, but co-authorship, uh, co-authorship or co-editorship, it, it's not a, um, a partnership of absolute equality. <laughs> All the times I've done it, and I've done it several times, someone is the lead dog, and then there's the sturdy dog. And you need and, both. And you need both. So what was really important for me is to be able to harvest over the sort uh, over months the columns that stood out to me as most worthy uh, of preserving. Now, it was clear early on that Gene was most well known for his work. He won a Pulitzer Prize for editorials that were about. Um, racial equality and uh, the changing south and, and those kinds of things he wrote many 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 other things he was a military you know he was a he wanted to be a, he, he could have been a great general i mean he had that kind of stature and he was very yes. interested in military he was very interested in vietnam but i think it's fair to say he was slower than other 
editorialists of understanding the problems with the war because he was a product of, uh, of World War II and it was hard for him to get his mind around the idea that generals and other leaders might be exaggerating on how well we were doing in, in Vietnam, that the, the causes were not as, as clear cut as they were for fighting the Nazis. But he wrote about that and he wrote about uh, Atlanta as editorial, as you'd expect an editorial writer uh, to do. He, he wrote about things like the airport in Atlanta. There was a famous incident, I'm afraid, I hope I'm not going to get any of this wrong, but a group of Atlanta kind of dignitaries got together on a flight to, I think it was Paris, France, and uh, the plane crashed and killed a significant number of key business and uh, social leaders. And so Gene became, for a while, fascinated with airline safety and, and those kinds of issues. So I read all of those and found them very compelling. It was kind of like a history lesson. But ultimately, he would return to the big question. Basically, what happens is if you have 3,000 columns, you have to say, well, how many of those will fit in a book? This becomes very practical at some point. So I said, I don't know, maybe maybe 200. I'm a putter-inner, <laughs> not a picker-outer. Amen. <laughs> I need help the taking out. So, I don't want help. <laughs> I took the first swing, and I don't know how many, but I brought... You know, but I brought to to Ray the first batch that I thought uh, dealt with the issues that we were most interested in. And of course, what was great with Ray, because in addition to being you know a fine writer and a very productive scholar, he was a Southern historian, and and he already knew all of these events, and so he could bring to the table a sense of history and a sense of Southern history that I lacked. I was more interested, I have to say, being a writing teacher. Ray's thing is history and, and language. For me, language moves up like to the top, given my interest. In, I'm, I'm interested in words and, and wordsmiths and, and how people solve problems in their writing, how they create a voice and what's most interesting and authentic in their work. And I thought it was fascinating to study, and I've written about this over the years since then, how Gene's rhetorical, let's call it his rhetorical stance. So who is Gene? Gene is a white Southerner. He grew up on a small farm. His mother was a school teacher. He went to Georgia schools. He was, uh, you know, he was educated. He was well-read. He was always, he was interested in the military. He joined the military, the army. He was a captain. He was a tank commander. He saw things in battle, as I said, that later he wished he had not seen them. He risked his life many times and he came back to the United States, I think, with a different perspective. He was a Southerner. He was a white Southern boy, grown up on a farm, 
he understood the agony of the South. He understood the mythologies of the South. And he seemed to understand the struggle that white people had to come to grips with the requirements of desegregation, starting in the mid-1950s. Now, he, he was very self-critical, and he learned that from Ralph McGill. Ralph McGill criticized his own work, his own early work, as being pale tea. He said, yeah, what I was writing, I was writing about these things, but boy, you know, it was pretty pale tea. Mm -hmm. It wasn't strong. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it wasn't invigorating. It was slow and hesitant. The kind of gradualism that Dr. King and others criticized. Now, to their credit, both of them evolved. And they evolved because they were upset and worried and inspired by the young black activists who they categorize as the real heroes of the movement, the people who were putting their bodies on the line. Yeah, it's really, really interesting to see Gene's evolution with the encouragement of Ralph McGill develop a much stronger voice. Now, that said, look, when the, synagogue, when the, when the Jewish temple in Atlanta was bombed uh, in the 50s, Ralph McGill, Ralph McGill wrote about that. Wonderful surprise, I believe, for that. Uh, in 1963, when the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham was bombed and four little girls were, were murdered, Gene could write with criticism of white Southern racism with a tremendous, with a passion of, you know, of an Old Testament uh, prophet. He could do that. But that wasn't his primary move. His primary move was conciliatory. And so what you see time and again is him shining a light on individual small groups of white Southerners who were evolving towards racial tolerance and racial justice. I'll give you a couple of examples in the, um, uh, from the collection. One of my favorite columns, it's an early one, Gene highlights, uh, he, he highlights a letter that he's received from a school teacher who was in a little traffic accident and who was helped by a state trooper and how polite the trooper was and how helpful he was and how he got her out of trouble and how that has not always been her experience with law enforcement and how she wanted Jean and she wanted the state of Georgia to know that a man like this officer existed. And at the end of the column, Jean reveals that this woman, the school teacher, is, is, um, is a black lady. Now, that was an astonishing, for its time, it was an astonishing move for a white newspaper to give an ordinary African-American person, school teacher, 
that platform. But it was also in Jean's interest. It's interesting. The, the column seems to be about her, but knowing Jean now, now, no, the, the column is really about the officer. What he was doing was highlighting a law enforcement officer who was not a member of the Klan, who uh, was not a bully, who was n not in, in the habit of belittling black people or brutalizing them any chance he got. Gene is really saying the moral of that story is like, this is, this is what law enforcement should look like in the state of Georgia. So that was one example. Another example involves the story of a National Guard soldier who served with Gene in the war. And he tells the story about how brave this young man was in, uh, in Europe, how they blew up a bridge to stop the Nazi troops from advancing. And so what happens? There's rioting in Mississippi because they're trying to integrate the school. And this man in the National Guard is sent to Mississippi to protect uh, students and create law and honor. And I believe he's, I believe he's shot and wounded by the members of the racist mob. And what's interesting is that this man, this National Guardsman, isn't some kind of progressive on matters of race. No, he's a, another young white Southern man who has his own questions about whether desegregation is such a great thing. And yet, he does the right thing. He follows the law. He's willing to lay his life on the line. And this man who survives the war against the Nazis comes home and is shot and wounded in Mississippi. It's another, another example of Gene holding up a pattern of, of virtue for others to, to follow. And Gene said that, it makes me laugh when, he, when Gene said it. Somebody came up to him. It means this is, I know what you're trying to do, Mr. Patterson. You're trying to make us think we're better than we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe he was. I teach writing at the University of Mississippi. So reading those columns about James Meredith, I found really relevant and something that I want to maybe show my students about it. Good. Yeah, great. What was so interesting, I have to be careful when I, when I say this because one of the things I learned in college was something that happens in literature, but it happens in real life. And it's called the myth of the golden age. And my mother was great at this. I know I do it. Oh man, if you wanted to hear great music, I don't know, you really, yeah, yeah, you really gotta, man, you don't know what it was like when the Beatles arrived, when, when I was in high school, you know. And, but, and then my mother did the same. My mother said, oh, yeah, you listen to this rock and roll stuff, but you, man, the big bands back in the 40s, that's, you know, Glenn Miller. Oh, that's when music was. So everybody kind of has a tendency sometimes to think about that there was this time in the past when things were really, really good. And in some cases, 
that may be true, but in most cases it's not true. And one of the things that's hard to talk about is how bad things were in the 1920s. We're starting to talk about it again with remembering these crimes against African-American communities and things like that going back after World War I and then during the entirety of the Jim Crow era. So it's, it's not a good thing to say. It doesn't seem helpful to say, if you think things are bad now, if you feel like America is a racist country now, man, you should have been living in the days of the Klan and the Knight Riders and the white citizen councils and, and those kinds of things. But one of the best reasons, yeah, I'm going to say for the record that 1968, I was 20 years old, was a bad year for America. It was a bad year for America. Or low-lighted by the assassination of Robert Kennedy, of Martin Luther King, riot, police riots on the streets of Chicago, people, uh, soldiers dying in Vietnam, all kinds of uh, bad stuff. One reason to evoke the past is to be inspired and hopeful by the ways in, the ways in which things did change for the better. Or if not permanently, the, the possibility of it changing for the better. And I think that's the kind of writer that Gene was. He understood something about race in America that he described in um, a very interesting way. He said something like, okay, it took the Civil War to end slavery. And then 100 years later, it took the Civil Rights Movement to create, to move towards equal justice under the law and to end segregation, essentially America's version of apartheid. He always said there's a lot more work to do. He said, I don't know what the next stage of our liberation is going to be, but he said, I have a feeling it has to be a change of heart, not a change of law. And when people asked him, well, how do we achieve that? He was not dismissive, but he was, once again, he was in a good sense of humor. He said, listen, hey, I think I've done my part. I, th I think it's your turn to figure, to figure that out now. And so we're trying to do it. That's something we talked a lot about, too, about how relevant this book is to our, our current moment and the conversations that folks are having. Yeah, very much so. John Lewis, I thought... You know, in a bad year, the death of John Lewis seemed just uh, cruel. On the other hand, you know, sometimes an artist, a painter, a great painter and artist, uh, isn't fully appreciated. The value of the work is not appreciated until that person passes away. And maybe his passing, you see it as a final blessing of a reminder that the struggle for justice and racial equality and nonviolence is not something you do and complete. Yeah, hey, we're washing our hands a lot these days and we're, you know, we did that. No, no, it's something that has to continue.
And I think what was really interesting is that the leaders of the civil rights movement in the South, the great leaders, the ones that we know from Atlanta, from Nashville, from other places, they recognized and valued white allies in the struggle. And they, they recognized in people like Gene Patterson and Ralph McGill that their work was enormously valuable to the movement and that they needed to be encouraged as well. And so there's communication letter between Dr. King and Gene Patterson, I think after Dr. King won the Nobel Prize. Gene was nervous about the leaders of the civil rights movement stepping forward in protest against the Vietnam War. And he and Dr. King promised each other they would get together and have a conversation about that. I met uh, Andrew Young, became the mayor of Atlanta, and we were at a book event together, and I bought the book he had written, and I told him that I was a protege, or that Gene Patterson had hired me, and I bought this book with Gene, and he inscribed it to Gene, and he wrote in it, Dear Gene, we need your leadership again. And uh, Gene was very happy to have it. And, and John Lewis, who of course was a very young man when he was involved with the, um, with the student nonviolent, uh, groups of nonviolent students who were protesting. And it's interesting to see their view of themselves, black activists, civil rights leaders, white editorialists, um, see, see themselves look back at the work they did when they were younger and as it evolved, how their relationship kind of grew and developed. I think what's important for people to remember, you know, there was some crazed man a couple of years ago, a year or so ago, went into the newspaper office in Annapolis, Maryland, and and shot and killed five people. There's violence all over the world against uh, journalists, among others. Gene was a soldier. He was, you know, he knew his way, way around uh, weapons. I asked him if he ever sort of carried a gun for protection. He said, no, absolutely not. But he said in the top drawer of his desk at the office, he kept a ball-peen hammer. <laughs> And I said, well, do you ever have to use it? He said, well, look, you know, we didn't have any guards or anything. We, we, we never knew who was going to walk into our office for what reason. And he said, yeah. He said, twice, he said, I put my finger on the drawer and tweaked it open a little bit just in case, you know, um, I needed something. So we're talking about not between um, 19, I would say between 1949 and 1962, about a dozen white newspaper editorialists from the South won Pulitzer Prizes for their work in Little Rock, 
in Greenville, Mississippi, in uh, Atlanta, of course, twice. Really, newspapers in, in Tuscaloosa. And newspaper offices were attacked. Bullets were fired into windows. People were harassed in the middle of the night. And so this was dangerous work. And the thing that Gene's greatest admirers say about him is that Ralph McGill chose him to be his successor because Gene had moral and physical courage and he could write like an angel. And he felt that that's exactly what the newspaper needed, what Atlanta needed, what the South needed, and what America needed. So that kind of leads into a question that I wanted to ask you from the piece that you wrote about John Lewis. And he's quoted in there saying that journalists should get in the way, finding a way to get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble, and how journalism should disrupt or disturb. What do you think that means to 2020, the current moment? How can journalism do that? The best example I can think of is what the New York Times has been doing over the last year or so with a I wouldn't call it a series, I'd call it a movement, uh, a movement or a project, a continuing project, under the date uh, 1619. Uh, one of the main players, Nicole Hannah-Jones, is a, an amazing reporter, African-American woman who's written powerfully about public schools and um, basically is inviting the idea that there's a way of thinking about the country that suggests that it was founded not in uh, 1776, but in 1619 when the first slaves, chattel slavery, the first slaves came, what's now the state of Virginia. And so um, what's happening is, I think, a kind of no, it's not even an. It's not a, a subtle invitation to reimagine our view of American history, but it's a kind of a urgent demand that forces all of us to think about um, where we stand, how we act, uh, what our communities look like, how some of us are privileged enough to see a police car and think protection and not have to think, oh my God, is something bad about to happen to me? Based on the difference in colors of our skin. So um, I think news organizations are struggling right now with many things. Let's take I would say if we just leave the, if we just hold on the issue of, of racial equality and justice, just, just put it on the table here just for a second and say that journalism is already facing two existential crises. The first, I would argue, is 
is a problem of resources uh, based on the collapse of the traditional business model of news brought about by technological change most powerfully, the internet. So the question of who is going to pay for good journalism in the future, is there even going to be a newspaper in some locations, in some cities? Or are they going, is, lo is local news going to, to disappear? Um, so that's crisis number one. Crisis number two are attempts by political partisans to uh, undermine the credibility of the news and to decertify uh, and devalue the work that uh, journalists do. So to ask then, to, to then ask journalists to become the leaders of a new, a revitalized movement towards civil rights and racial equality is a hard thing to ask, but uh, I'm certainly proud of the work that I'm seeing around the country done by journalists um, of all different ethnicities and backgrounds um, on everything we're going through right now from uh, the pandemic to the uh, recession to social protests and uh, add to that the um, the kind of the kind of strides we're taking towards a presidential election. And uh, this is one of the most uh, extraordinary moments of my lifetime. And probably many of us would, would say that. Mine too. Mm -hmm. But look, my mother was born in 1919. You know what was going on in 1919? What? The Spanish flu. Right. That started in Missouri, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only reason we call it the Spanish flu is because Spain, the press in Spain was only was, was one of the only ones allowed to to spread the news that there was a pandemic. That it wasn't censored, and so uh, they got labeled. But yeah, I figured out. I wrote on a Mother's Day piece about how I just figured out that my grandma Sadie got pregnant in October of 1918, had the baby uh, in July. And uh, October in New York City was the high point of the uh, epidemic in the city. And that among the most vulnerable groups of, uh, of people were pregnant women uh, and their the unborn children. So, um, uh, look, if that wasn't good enough, uh, in her, my mom's lifetime, uh, she got to experience uh, a decade of uh, depression and uh, and uh, World War World War Two. So, once again, she would not have wished those things on anyone else but the fact that they lived through them they raised families they prospered they helped others 
that that gave great meaning uh, to her life. And now it's our turn. I say one of the best uh, blessings I ever had with being raised by two, uh, my both of my parents lived through the Depression and the World War II. Yeah. And the values they instilled in my brother and I yeah. that live with me to this day were just invaluable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. The only thing I have to say about having parents who grew up in the Depression is that my wife and I talk about this quite a bit is that you can't make enough money to overcome the inhibitions that are given to you, uh, are, are the legacy of the depression, which is to say, oh, no, that's too expensive. What do you mean? Well, I can't buy those shoes. They're uh, $35. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have this automatic thing in my brain, just how much I will pay for something. Exactly. That's it. Automatic. I look at something, I look at the price, nope. And uh, so it's just like instilled there. And it's something I did to myself, but it's that hand-me-down from my parents. And, and I, when you uh, spoke about a ball ping ha hammer, I laugh because I think the only other, last time I heard that expression was 50-something years ago when my dad was still alive. He would talk about that kind of hammer pretty regularly. <laughs> he was a funny man. I, I bought about a dozen of them <laughs> uh, when the book was published. Just get, get them at the hardware store and, uh, and gave them out as, uh, as gifts to uh, supporters of the book. So. Um, was there anything else you wanted to ask about the book or say about it? I just wish the book would get back in the main, like get on Rachel Maddow or some yeah. of those great news shows because it is so meaningful for right now. And, you know, if people would just read the book and start talking about it and getting other people interested, maybe it will would start some type of a, revival kind of yeah. movement well Ray, Ray and I have been in touch we're going to do um, we're going to do some events we're going to do some you know uh, in the next few months um, good Patterson and I'm John Lewis and um, yeah I'm, it'll be look it's at least it's there it's a resource and I'm interested in that paperback um, that you were talking about too yeah, no, they did a good job. We just changed. Uh, we just wrote a a, a short new um, introduction. Okay. Everything else kind of remained uh, the same. Now, before I leave you, Marja, I have to I say that it's my habit always to have I always have a musical instrument nearby. Great. And I like to take requests from people who talk to me or interview me or something like that. And so uh, I. I'm pretty good on the music of the 40s, 50s, and 60s. After that, not so much, but I'll try anything. And you can name a song, or you can name a group, or a performer, or a style. And I'll try to give you something right here before we, we, we part. 
I love this so much because we talk a lot about karaoke on our on the podcast because she's a big karaoke singer and I so we always are talking about singing and she sings and stuff. Well, of course, my favorite, favorite, favorite song is My Little Margie, sung by Fats Domino. Well, he actually revitalized it. So if you don't know Margie, I'm always thinking of you, Margie. Sing, did you play anything by uh, Fats Domino? Margie. I'm always thinking about you, Margie. I don't know the song, by the way, but... Yeah. That, you got it. You got it. That was Tom. I'll tell the world about you. So how about... Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What are you going to do when the sun don't shine? You're going to have a real time. I'm going to run right by your side. You're a pretty baby, I'll leave it around. Oh, it's a day and I'm talking about you and me. And I'm going to come back to me. Oh, yeah. There you go. Thank you. That made my year. So that's our episode. We talked about Gene Patterson with Roy Peter Clark. He sang you a song. Margie, I'm always thinking of you, Margie, is what he sung. He did. He did a great job. He heard me sing that amount of words. One time, he got to his keyboard, played it, and sang it, and then went on to uh, Fast Domino's, well, rock and roll. Down and dirty songs. He's very talented. He we talked a lot about. I mean, we only talked about Gene Patterson book, but he has a lot of other books, including the one that we have on our table right now, The Glamour of Grammar. And I love words. I've had his books about writing and concision and language. He's great. He's a great writer. He's a great teacher. He was a great, a great singer. Interviewee. A great interview. Yeah, that was great. That was. I fun. mean, I. Go check him out. Check out Gene Patterson. It's a very relevant book to the times. And you really can't miss reading that book. I kid you not. You've got to read that Gene Patterson book. Subscribe to the podcast if you like what you heard. Send us an email. Or chocolate. Or chocolate. Send us if you want. You know, you want us to talk about your Florida book. Have your person call our person. <laughs> right. Have your person call our person whose name is Roxy and she's a dog. <laughs> She'll get she's back. our only person. She'll get back to you. She's all when she afford, feels like. And she's getting pretty expensive. <laughs> Subscribe to the newsletter. Check us out. Email this to your friends. Do all of those things. Well, working with my grandson on this has been better than taking any kind of drug for depression. I had a well, friend. Well, we'll talk more about that in our finale episode. What if we got to stick to the schedule? What if I forget it? We got to stick to the schedule. Okay, guys. You reminding gotta, that I want to talk about a friend that called me. Tune in to that. Her name was Debbie. Have a great and sunny day. See ya. See, see ya. He loves me. <laughs>